I once got 17 mosquito bites in under four minutes. I am not exaggerating. It was a very hot and humid day. It was woodsy, but 17. I am no longer going to be getting bug bites, mosquito bites in particular, because I use One Earth Body Care's Bite Me Not Natural Bug Spray. It's powerfully effective against mosquitoes, black flies, and no seams. Oil of lemon, eucalyptus, gives four-hour-plus protection. It's deep-free, does not absorb into bloodstream with bio-vanillin and essential oils for a warm, fruity aroma. It is 15% off until the end of June 2023. And if you forget to put on your Bite Me Not Natural Bug Spray, be sure to pick up their Itch Be Gone. It is a wonderful, soothing salve, an herbal infusion with essential oils to calm insect bites and inflammation. I swear by this. I wake up in the middle of the night itchy. I put this on, I go right back to sleep. It's amazing. So please go to oneearthbodycare.com, 15% off their Itch Be Gone and their Bite Me Not, and check out all of the other great stuff. They've got shampoo bars, conditioner bars, they've got stuff for your pets, they've got dry skin care, and so much more. Check them out, oneearthbodycare.com. Does your dog do? Well, joining us today to answer this question and to talk about her fantastic book that blew me away is E.B. Bartels, Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter. E.B. Bartels is a nonfiction writer, a former Newtonville Books bookseller, and a Grub Street instructor with an MFA from Columbia University. She is the author of Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter, a narrative nonfiction book about loving and losing animals, and her essays and interviews have appeared in Salon, Slate, WBUR, Literary Hub, Catapult, Electric Literature, The Believer, and The Rumpus, among others. E.B. lives in Massachusetts with her husband, Richie, and their many, many pets. E.B., does your dog do? Well, what Seymour likes to do, who is our little Chihuahua Pitbull mix, (gasps) is he will not touch my shoes or Richie, my husband's shoes, but whenever we have a visitor... He will grab one of their shoes and carry it around the house. Like he's so excited that they're here. So I don't know why he does that, but he's always been like that. <laughs> okay. First of all, I'm a pit bull fanatic. As a matter of fact, today is my pity's birthday. Blue Aww. is eight today. And I'm feeling a lot of sadness because I don't want him to get any older. I just want it to, can we just stay this way? And in this book, you talk about all the different ways people grieve for pets, as well as the experiences you had growing up with pets. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in chapter one in Fish and Fossils is you share how your mom wasn't resistant to getting a pet because of the allergies she had, but because she was worried about how sad you would be when the pet died. Talk to us about this. Yeah, so that was something I didn't realize until I was significantly older. Um, And it makes sense. My mom has always been very protective of me and I'm her only child. And, you know, she's always worried, doesn't want me to, you know, feel hurt if at all possible, which I understand completely. Um, But having a pet 
in my opinion, as someone who's now had many, many pets, is such an enriching and special and wonderful experience that it by far outweighs the really sad, awful part at the end, which I think is the reason why, like by far, I mean, I interviewed dozens and dozens of pet owners for this book. And I think maybe two people I spoke with, you know, said I can never have another dog after that loss and actually stuck with it. Most people, um, including my own husband, who when we first met he was like I can never have another dog like he had just had to put down his childhood dog he was like I can't ever do it again and you know it took him almost 10 years but now he and Seymour are best friends and you know he's so happy to have another dog but it takes everyone time to get over that loss but I think that so many people are what I call repeat offenders you know who have more than one dog in their life more than one cat more than one any type of pet really because the good really outweighs the hard stuff. Yeah, that's so true. And you loved this fish. You would sit at the counter for hours and hours and look at the fish. And I can relate. I know a hamster is different. They're more active. But my mom would not let us get a dog. And it was a miracle she let us get a hamster rascal. And we foolishly taught him to climb the stairs. (laughs) So he would escape all the time. Anyway, he lived three and a half years, supposed to live a year. Three and a half years this hamster lived. And I was just enamored with him. He wasn't a dog, but it was it was thing that I took care of and loved. So talk to us about watching watching your fish. Yeah, well, I mean, I know you said your hamster wasn't a dog, but I, a lot of people have often asked me, you know, do people grieve differently based on the type of animal or do you feel more sorrow when a dog dies versus a hamster or, you know, a cat over a fish? And in my experience personally, and also in talking to so many people is that it doesn't matter the type of pet, what matters is the connection you have with that pet. And so for some people, they build up a stronger connection because the pet lives for like, you know, my grandfather had a Yorkie, uh, Samantha, who lived for 17 years, like that's such a long time, you know, decades. So of course, they were really close. But you know, I really love my fish, because they were the first pet that I really could call my own that we had in our home. Like I had all these awesome classroom pets at my elementary school, but these fish were mine. And I was so proud and excited to clean their tank. Like there are all these photos of me as like a little kid standing on stools, like washing out the fish tank, like really excited to do like a pretty (laughs) mundane thing. And, you know, I was really upset when they died because, um, you know, it was my first experience with losing a pet that was really mine. And then there's also the whole added complicated factor with pets that, you know, when a person dies, sometimes, you know, I think a person can feel responsible for another person, especially, you know, a parent, if a child gets sick and dies or, you know, if you're somebody's medical proxy, maybe you've been caring for somebody for a long time who's sick, you can feel sort of guilt, like maybe you messed up and didn't care for them as best you could. Um, But often I think people think of other people as more their own autonomous being. So when they die, it's, it's a little bit more you know, that happened and I didn't necessarily do something to cause it. But I think because pets, you know, legally pets are our property, you know, people feel a lot of responsibility and pets don't like grow up and go to college, right? So they they always- (laughs) Thank goodness. 
you know, they, they all, they're with you, you get them and you care for them until they die. And I think, you know, you, you feel like you have this contract with a pet when you bring them into your home. That's like, I'm going to love you and care for you the best I can until you're no longer alive. And even if, you know, your fish is super old and it's time, like if your hamster's three and that's like incredibly old for a hamster, you still feel, I think when the death happens, like you must've messed up somehow. Yeah, it was really hard because I also knew I was never going to get another pet. Like it was such a fluke that my mom said yes. And and that I don't mean that to sound callous, like I didn't deeply love Rascal. But there was that this is the end of this experience in this house growing up. A psychologist I spoke to um, pointed out the fact that because pets live for shorter windows of time, they often mark really specific eras in our life. So like, you know, there's like an expression that it's like, you know, you live an eight dog life basically, where it's like you have eight dogs who live for 10 years each. And like, that's the span of your life approximately. And I think though, that's really true. Right. Cause like when I think back on my childhood, you know, sometimes I'll be like, Oh yeah. The Kiki years when I, that bird was alive, you know, or, Oh, that was when Gus was around, you know, and it's a very specific window of time and so when a pet dies, I think often you're both mourning the actual animal who you love and had a relationship with, but you're also sort of mourning that part of your life. Right. And I interviewed some parents, you know, who talked about getting dogs, for example, because their kids like beg for dogs and then the kids go off to college and the dogs usually like, like in my case too, we got my dog Gus when I was 10 and then he died when I was in college, which is like a pretty standard thing. So then it's like parents are mourning both their kids growing up and leaving the house. And also like the end of like this dog was the last relic from their kid's childhood. And now the dog is gone too. So it's like mourning all these different pieces that have changed. Yeah, I was so impressed in the book, how many researchers you talked to. And in the, in the first chapter of Fish and Fossils, we learn a lot about mummification. What did you find most fascinating about this in your in the research? Well, for me, the thing I found most fascinating was just how old so many of these pet memorial rituals are. When I spoke with people, you know, I mentioned what I was writing my book about. A lot of people were like, oh, of course, you know, like, more people are having pets instead of having kids. Like obviously pets fill a larger space in our lives now, you know, people have more disposable income and more resources to have pets than they did, you know, in the great depression. Um, so yeah, obviously people would be like burying their pets in pet cemeteries now and stuff. And I was always really quick to say, no, I'm reading about so many rituals that are thousands and thousands of years old. So the mummification is probably the most, well-known example that in ancient Egypt, you know, there are different kinds of um, animal mummies. And I write about this in the book. Sometimes they were sort of sacrificial offerings to the gods. Um, but often they could be pets and just like animals that people wanted to be part of their life in the afterlife. So they were mummified and put in the, you know, the tomb right alongside their body. And they were like, great, my dog will be with me in the next life. Um, and I really also loved reading about like there are all these ancient um, dog cemeteries, uh, often specifically above the Arctic Circle with these indigenous cultures who rely really heavily on, on dogs, like for sled dogs, for hunting that, you know, they literally could not survive without 
their dogs, helping them. And, you know, archaeologists have found these beautiful cemeteries and, you know, dogs buried with bones in their mouths or with collars and, and clearly buried with intention and love because, you know, these animals were such a big part of people's lives. So I always say that pretty much people have been grieving pets for as long as they've had pets. <laughs> Yeah, that is so true. Now, in chapter two, birds and bonding, I, I like this. You wrote, quote, mom should have known the fish were nice, but they weren't enough. So she let you get a bird named Kiki. Tell us a little about Kiki and what it meant for you to have him. Oh, well, Kiki was great. He was um, uh, like a Gloucester finch, Gloucester canary. And so, you know, he was this yellowy brown and he really had a distinctive personality um, in a way that no offense to the fish, or it was harder for me to discern with the fish. If you spend a lot of time with fish and my husband, Richie has kept fish as long as I've known him, you know, they're fish definitely have personalities too, but Kiki was such a character. Like he loved broccoli and we would put like a piece in his cage and he would pick all the little like flor florets or whatever they're called off and, you know, leave the stem. <laughs> And he was also very skittish. Like he didn't like to, I, I had this dream that he was going to like sit on my shoulder and walk around the house. And he was like, not that at all. But, you know, it was really cool to then have this much more animate and engaged pet that I felt like he like noticed when I came into the room. Sometimes yeah. he wasn't when I came into the room, but he was like aware <laughs> of my presence. And, um, Kiki also for a bird lived a pretty long time. And so again, like thinking about like the Kiki years, like that was a significant chunk of my childhood. And I remember doing things like, you know, throwing birthday parties for him because, you know, he lived long enough that he could have many birthday parties. And, you know, I grew up knowing, okay, my parents love me and they show love by throwing me a birthday party every year. So I love Kiki. So I'm going to throw him a birthday party every year. So I feel like having a pet, as a kid that lives for multiple years, you know, over a longer span of time, you understand, you know, better, at least I feel like what a commitment having a pet is too. like, they're not disposable. They live for, you know, a long time. You have to figure out their care. I remember my dad, um, was working with a company that um, he had to go do business in Paris for six weeks one summer. And so my mom and I got to live with him in Paris, which was really cool. But I remember we had to figure out, okay, my grandparents are going to take Kiki. Kiki's going to live at their house. You know, it was like, <laughs> and it was my first experience of learning like, okay, it's, it's complicated to have a pet and you have to put a lot of thought into the care and keeping of an animal. So I think Kiki's death then hit me even harder because he had been around for such a large portion of my life. I think it was like five years, um, which oh, wow. you know, when you're 10 is literally half your life. <laughs> yeah. In chapter three, rodents and responsibility, you had to share in class your dream pet and you said it would be a ferret, which made me smile because my daughter really wants a ferret. And because of that, you made a new friend named Mary. And Mary had a hamster named Chucky. And you can share the story or people can get your book, whatever you want. But I thought it was really significant and quite traumatic. Yeah, I mean, the short version is that I offered to hamster sit for Mary when she and her family went to Disney World. And 
Chucky was already very old when he came into my care um, and did not make it through the week that I was taking care of him, which, you know, in reading more about it, if an animal is elderly or sick already, then if you change their environment, there might have been one little draft that, you know, whatever. Right. But, you know, he, he didn't make it. And I was extremely upset because it's one thing to feel like I messed up the care of my own pet, but you know, you then are only letting down yourself, right? You know, I felt awful when Kiki died because I felt like I must have done something to screw up, you know, that he, I don't know, I, I hadn't fed him well enough or cut his nails well enough or whatever it was. But with someone else's pet, like that responsibility is is really, really intense. And, you know, I dog sat a lot in my early 20s before I had a dog of my own. And I remember feeling like extreme anxiety walking other people's dogs way more so than I ever felt walking my own dogs. Because I was like, this is someone else's like, yep. you know, baby, basically. And if anything happens, like, I would feel so bad. So um, what was really special, though, about the situation with Chucky is just how understanding Mary was. And I mean, she's now like a medical health professional. So I think she has always had a very uh, practical understanding of life and death and that it's just part of how things are. Um, and she never held anything against me. If anything, later she joked, you know, that hamster was like on the verge of death, like when I dropped him off, you know, <laughs> but it was a really... Um, you know, traumatic, but memorable experience because, you know, it's one thing feeling that guilt over losing your own animal, but a whole other thing when you feel like you've let down not only someone else's pet, but your, your friend or, you know, someone else as well. Yeah, that is very hard. And I I really felt for you. And I was so glad Mary was so understanding. Now in chapter four, Turtles and Taxidermy, your dad, you write that your dad, quote, gently tried to explain to me the concept of temporary pets. How did he describe that to you? Yeah, so um, in the fourth chapter, I've always really loved turtles um, and tortoises. I don't really know why. I've just always had an affinity for them. And, you know, in the summer in New England, we would always find like painted turtles in the middle of the road and I would want to take them home and rescue them. And, we'd set up a kiddie pool and I, you know, they'd swim around and I'd feed them and make them these elaborate like enclosures. But then, you know, my dad would always try to tell me that these are wild animals. Like we really shouldn't keep them from where they need to be and we should let them go. So you can, you know, keep a a painted turtle as a pet for like a weekend, but then you should, you know, bring them (laughs) back to the pond where they were trying to go when you found the middle of the road. And, you know, now that I know a lot more about keeping wild animals too, and I know you're actually really not supposed to do that at all. But, um, (laughs) you know, I thought that was an interesting point though, too, because, you know, thinking about pets that like domesticated animals too, can also be temporary pets. You know, if you are, um, you know, a hamster in a way, three years is a long time when you're a kid, but it is temporary. It's not your whole life. And honestly, like all pets are temporary pets in a way, right? You know, like they don't live the whole span of our lives as we wish they would. Um, And so I think, you know, when my dad kind of brought up that idea, he was trying to get me to appreciate, like, enjoy the time you have now with this animal because it's not going to last forever. And I think that applies to every type of pet animal that you have a relationship with. Yeah, my husband will see me getting teared up while I'm cuddling Blue, 
And I'll go, honey, he's here. There he is right now. Enjoy it. Free grieving is like a very normal thing. Actually, I, I kind of wish I had written more about it in the book, but you know, a lot of people I talked to spoke about even having like puppies and getting teared up and thinking like, what am I going to do in 10 years? You know, like, yeah. how am I going to, and I have that happen with Seymour because he, he hates trucks and is always lunging after trucks. And I have these visions of him getting crushed by the FedEx truck. And, you know, I, I panic and, you know, Richie, my husband does a similar thing. He's like, well, he didn't get hit by the FedEx truck today. Right. So, you know, like, don't worry about something that didn't happen, you know, didn't happen <laughs> yet. But yeah, and it's a normal thing because I think human brains are always trying to prepare and brace yourself for the worst. So by crying ahead of time, you're like, maybe Blue's death will be less sad if I've already grieved him a bit before. But honestly, it's going to just be as sad no matter what. It's going to be devastating, which is why I'm going uh, after this interview, I'm going to go and get some birthday hats because it is his birthday today. And, uh, you know, we got to celebrate. I found it so fascinating. When I to read about the taxidermy and the clones and the freeze dried pets, just tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so I um, my goal for this book was to really show, like, as wide a range of ways to memorialize a pet um, as possible, and in particular, I was really interested in the ways that or, or things you can do to memorialize an animal that you cannot do for a person. Um, so. There are contemporary groups that will mummify a human body if you want. Um, and obviously, like pet cemeteries are modeled after human cemeteries. And a lot of people, when they're kind of lost and looking for a ritual or a way to grieve a pet who's died, will turn to things that they do for humans. So, like, I interviewed one couple who the wife is Jewish. And so they sat Shiva for their Yorkie, which is like, you know, great. Like, you've grown up doing this for family members. Your Yorkie is one of your family members. So of course you will sit Shiva. Um, But I found that it was really interesting to talk to people who did things that, I mean, at least as far as I know, you cannot legally like taxidermy your grandmother. Um, But, you know, it was interesting because again, like going back to what I said, like pets are property. So you are allowed to kind of do things with their bodies that you legally cannot do with a human body. Um, And I thought it was really interesting. And I tried to keep a really open mind going into all these interviews, you know, like cloning is super expensive. And so I kind of went into it thinking like, I'm never going to do this. Like, why would I, why would I ever clone a dog when there's so many dogs in shelters? Like I found myself doing that kind of judgy thing after talking to people who work at the cloning company um, and then I interviewed one of their clients who he had his dog cloned, I started to get it. You know, I still am like, maybe this isn't for me, but you know, the, the woman I interviewed at the cloning company pointed out that often people choose to clone a dog um, or cat who either is like a really unusual mixed breed. So they're like, Oh, we could never recreate this distinctive mutt, you know, um, or they neutered or spayed their pet before they realized maybe they did want to like breed, um, breed that animal. And then also the, the gentleman, John, who I interviewed, you know, he said he loved the idea of his dog's DNA, like living on, you know, cause it made him feel like she was still alive in a leather, another way. And the two, the clones he has of his original dog are clearly like their own dogs. Like they have 
different names. You know, he sends me photos and sometimes they do things that are very similar to his original dog, but like they're their own beings. Um, and someone described it as like having a clone is like having an identical twin as opposed to you're not like getting the same animal you're having, you know, and so identical twins can have totally different personalities, right? Even if they look alike. Yeah. But you know, I just really loved feeling like her genetic material still existed in the world. And I, and you know, again, I don't know if I'll ever do that myself, but it was really interesting to talk to people who, um, who did that. And with taxidermy as well, you know, I, I thought at first maybe people who taxidermy a pet have a really hard time letting go of an animal, um, you know, that they're like trying to bring the animal back to life. And honestly, everyone, taxidermists and people who had had animals taxidermied who I spoke to, I think actually were more in touch with like the realities of death than other people because like they are seeing their their animal's body every single day and they know like okay this is not my pet this is like the shell that once housed my pet but you know when they think about it more like artwork or sculpture that's a tribute to this animal that they loved and you know i, I was really impressed actually because i was like you have to look death in the eye basically every single day when you look at like the taxidermy like even just like the paw or like the skeleton of your pet as opposed to you know like i interviewed other people who maybe had buried their animals or had them cremated who could kind of like compartmentalize and forget that that had happened you know but like you are not forgetting when you like wake up every morning and there's your boss terrier in a glass case, you know? I <laughs> just, yeah, I would find that really difficult, but respect people's, you know, choice to do what they yeah. want. I have to say after doing those interviews, I started to think about, I have, um, I have two pet tortoises and I was like, oh, their shells are so beautiful. I could see wanting to preserve like this, this shell, but they also will probably outlive me because, you know, they can live 20 to 60 years. So. <laughs> If you hear some whining in the background, that's blue. So I'm itching his butt at this moment or his whines will become full on loud cries. I want to talk about disenfranchised grief because I think that happens to so many of us. First of all, for people who don't know what it is, tell us what it is. Sure. Um, well, disenfranchised grief is really any type of grief that is not kind of socially recognized. Um the most common examples that I read about were often the grief that surrounds having a miscarriage or grief of going through a divorce or grief of losing, you know, um, a neighbor who you were close to, right? Like we right. can have all kinds of relationships with other people that often are hard to articulate. Like on paper, it sort of looks like, why are you that sad about that? But yeah. you don't actually really know what people's relationships are like. Um, and, you know, in how at least in American society, like bereavement leave is set up, you get a certain amount of leave granted, you know, for a parent's death or a sibling's death, maybe, or a child's death, God forbid, but like other types of deaths, like, you know, I know people whose cousins are their best friends and, but like having a cousin die doesn't count, you know? And so similarly with pets, like so many people I spoke with, you know, have very special and close bonds with their animals, especially like people who are elderly or people who live alone. And often like their animals are their lifeline into, you know, the world. And otherwise they would just be so isolated. And yet often people have a really hard time talking about their feelings, you know, when a pet dies, because you're not really sure how people are going to react. Um, 
And sometimes you can have people who are really understanding who, you know, say, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. You know, when my dog died, I had to miss a week of work because I was just so devastated, you know. But then you can also have people who say like, oh, like, well, there are lots of pit bulls in shelters. Can't you just go get another one? You know, who don't really understand like, well, right. yeah, you can go get another pit bull, but it's not going to be blue, right? Exactly. Like, and, um, you know, there, there are two stories that I learned when I was researching this book, which I just thought kind of sums it up nicely, which is... One person I spoke with, you know, mentioned that she, her parents had to euthanize her childhood cat. So she went to her boss and was like, I'd like to skip work tomorrow so I can go back to be with my parents while we all go and put the cat down together. And the boss was like, well, all right, I guess you can use your time off for that. But it's really inappropriate that you asked. And he was like, that is horrible. So upset. Like she was already upset about her cat. Right. And then this is on top of it. Um, you know, and so obviously I can see why would you want to talk about being sad about your childhood cat dying with anyone if you could get that reaction, you know, just pretend oh, I have a cold, you know, and don't tell somebody why you're, you're missing work. Meanwhile, though, another woman I interviewed who she's, I believe from South Dakota originally, but had gone to college in Boston, was living out in Boston, um, newly graduated, like 21, 22, totally broke, found out her parents back in South Dakota had to put down her childhood cat and really wanted to fly home to be with them for it, but couldn't afford it, happened to mention this to her boss and he transferred all his airline miles to her. Just like, and she said she didn't even think he was like a big pet person. He just like got that this was important and just like gave her the need to fly home to be with her family for it. That's awesome. So like, it's, it's really hard because, you know, you don't really know how people are going to react. And that's what makes that type of grief disenfranchised because it really makes you feel isolated while you're going through it because you don't know, you know, what people are going to say or do. I mean, honestly, people are often terrible about reacting to death. Oh, they're horrible. And I don't think I've sh- I may have shared this story. I'm not sure. So I'll keep it brief. But a month after my mom died, it was in 95 and I was in my 20s. There's this guy that I kind of casually knew from the gym and he saw me and I looked really bummed out. He's like, oh, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, well, my mom died. He goes, wasn't that like a month ago? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you should be over it by now. Number one, you don't get over it. You get used to it. I'm still not over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, and it's funny because I would say like people often have the best reactions to parents dying because that's maybe the most relatable type of death that a lot of people go through. But yeah, I think Americans in general are like, we have a very death phobic culture. And so I think often when people say like, shouldn't you be over it already? It's, it's them expressing their own fears or weird baggage surrounding, you know, anxiety and grief over death. Yeah. Um, Or they're just parroting back something someone said to them once, you know? And I think though, if you're supposed to get over the death of your mother in a month, then people think, okay, you get maybe like 24 hours to get over your dog dying. (laughs) Like you could have had that dog for 15 years. Like that's a long time, you know? So, um, yeah. And like, I would have expected, you know, with, if a parent loses a child, people to be more understanding. I hope so. I interviewed some therapists who said, absolutely not. People say like, oh, well you can just have another one. Right. Which is like so awful. Um, But I think, you know, people often ask me, like, what do you do or say when someone has lost a pet? And my advice is, 
you know, think about what you would do if they lost a person that they love, which I mean, I guess for some people is to say something crass and awful, but (laughs) well, I like to think it's like, okay, send a sympathy note. Um, You know, maybe bring a meal over or send, if you don't live nearby, send like a gift card, you know, so they can go get takeout at a restaurant or order delivery. So they don't have to worry about cooking when they're sad or, you know, send flowers or make a donation in, your friend or like the pet's name, which can be a really nice thing to do. Like find, you know, if you know, um, for example, our dog Seymour came from the animal rescue league of Boston. So like you could make a donation in Seymour's memory to the animal rescue league, you know? And I think those are all really kind things to do when anybody's grieving any type of loved one, whether it's a person or an animal. Um, and I think just sending a card really it makes a lot, um, an email, a note, a text, even just, you know, makes a big difference and it makes people feel validated. Like they, you know, are not grieving in vain, I guess. Um, yeah. you know, and even, even one of my best friends from growing up, you know, she never really, she grew up with a cat, but the cat was very much her sister's cat and she's never really gotten like the whole pet thing. But she said that reading my book, she's like, I understand it now. She's like, I don't really like, she's like, I don't really get pets. Like, I don't really want pets. But she's like, I get that it's the same kind of grief that like, you know, people feel for all kinds of reasons. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Does your family include a dog or a cat? Would you like to be better educated on how to advocate for their health naturally? Then why not check out all of the amazing resources on naturallyhealthypets.com? Dr. Judy Morgan is a trusted advisor and a regular guest here on the Dog Eared Podcast. She has over 38 years experience as an integrative veterinarian, acupuncturist, chiropractor, food therapist, author, speaker, podcast host, and owner of Dr. Judy Morgan's Naturally Healthy Pets. Dr. Judy's goal is to change the lives of pets by educating and empowering pet parents just like you in the use of natural healing therapies and minimizing the use of chemicals, vaccinations, and poor quality processed food. Head on over to naturallyhealthypets.com where you'll discover healthy product recommendations, comprehensive courses, the Naturally Healthy Pets podcast, 
informative blogs, upcoming events, and so much more. Again, that's naturallyhealthypets.com, the place to learn how to give your pet the vibrant life that they deserve. Well, you just mentioned cats. So tell us a little bit about Clark. Yeah. So I have to admit, I did not grow up with cats. My mom is super allergic to cats and I've always been a little awkward around cats. Like I feel like I don't really know how to like pick them up well. Um, Me too. So Mary, the same friend who had the hamster, ended up getting this cat, Clark, when she was in grad school. And I have to say, I despised Clark when I first met him. He was always biting people's toes and he scratched and he was just like kind of aggressive and he loved Mary, but hated everyone else. And I like dreaded having to interact with Clark when I would visit her. And what was really fascinating though was... Um, Mary's mom, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer and got pretty sick pretty quickly. And so Mary moved home and moved back in with her parents to help care for her mom. And Clark was just transformed from sort of this aggressive asshole cat to being extremely affectionate. And you know, Mary said that she'd always been like a little bit worried about Clark, like with other people, because he could scratch and bite. But all of a sudden around her mom, he was just like this angel and always was like warming her spot on the bed and they would watch TV and he would like snuggle up close to her. And it's so amazing to me how animals really like are intuitive when something is wrong. And like, you know, they can definitely smell illnesses um, that people can't, you know, they've actually trained dogs to detect cancer and COVID and even Parkinson's. Um, And like they're rats actually who can smell um, if someone is tuberculosis or not. So it's, it's amazing what animals can sense in that way. But I always am really impressed by then animals reacting um, in a way that seems affectionate and kind, like they understand, you know, that this person is maybe not doing well and they kind of are protective and caring in a way that maybe they would be for another, you know, cat or kitten um, who is also struggling. So I think that is, um, that was a really special thing to see with Clark and, you know, he remains a jerk to everyone else, but (laughs) really, really affectionate to Mary and her mom when that was going on. Chapter eight canines and community. You grew up with two blonde Karen Terriers, Gus and Gwen, October 13th, 1997. You finally got a dog. Oh my goodness. Tell us about this. And how old were you then? Um, I was nine, almost 10. And I feel like that's like the most formative age to get a dog. Like it was just the best day. I still remember it so vividly. We got him from this breeder in New Hampshire. And I remember like the drive up to New Hampshire felt like the longest drive of my life. You know, it was probably like 45 minutes. And I just like (laughs) wait to get this dog. And I just remember holding Gus and he had that like puppy smell and he fell asleep like right in my like elbow. And I just was like, oh my God, my life is never going to be the same. Like I, I had that feeling. And, you know, I think getting, getting a dog or any pet really around that age, like elementary school, like Gus and then our other dog, Gwen, were really there for me all through those hard middle school years, hard high school years, applying and getting rejected from colleges, you know, they were there through some pretty big life moments. And, 
you know, they were sort of this consistent touchstone for me. Like, you know, if I had a crappy day in seventh grade and, you know, I felt like I was, my friends were, you know, all interested in boys and I still wanted to play with American girl dolls and I was, you know, upset about it. I could come home and just like lie on the kitchen floor with Gus and Gwen and I would always feel better after that. Um, And similarly, like, yeah, when I was applying to colleges and got rejected from my first choice, I remember being so upset, but like there was Gus and Gwen, you know, always, you know, they didn't know what was going on. They just like, were like, let's go for a walk, you know? And I think (laughs) animals, um, you know, and dogs in particular are often so in the present, you know, they don't worry about the future um, that they, you know, help at least me stay more focused on like, okay, well, this thing didn't work out, but there's no point really on dwelling on it. You know, like what is really good here and now, right now. And I think that animals have a great way to kind of shake us out of our own heads in some way. Yeah. And I love in the book, you write, these two dogs were my most loyal friends, constant companions for years, but nothing in life is constant, especially not a pet. And you write, when putting Gus down, your dad was sobbing every time. and, And he said, I think it's going to get easier but every time it's different and awful in its own way. Mm-hmm. I think about that all the time. And I tell people that all the time too, because yeah. I just, my dad had had a lot of dogs um, by the time that Gus died. And I thought, Oh, you know, he'll, he's a pro at euthanasia. It must not be right. that bad. And every time though, he said, it's totally different. And every dog is different. Every death is different. Um, you know, you can be attached to different pets in different ways based on your life, you know, phase that you're in. Um, You know, like I thinking again about my grandfather and the Yorkie he had, you know, when both my mom and aunt went off to college, it was kind of him and this little dog and he started bringing her to work with him every day. And that was like then this whole special relationship they had that was just the two of them like driving to and from the office and she would sit, my grandfather owns an insurance agency and, and she would sit in the front window and like bark at customers. And that was like a very special thing that they had together that, you know, if Samantha had been part of his life 20 years earlier, he may have been too busy working other jobs to have had that with her. Or if he was older, you know, maybe he would have been retired and it would have been different. But I mean, it's actually not true. My grandfather is almost 90 and is still not retired. Um, Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh yeah. That's incredible. Credit dogs keeping him young. But (laughs) I think that you know, every death is, is different. And, you know, I thought for a while when I was younger, Oh, it's like a callus you build up that you're like, okay, I'm, I'm an expert now at grieving pets. And, you know, a lot of people have thought like, Oh, because you wrote this book, you must be like, so ready for, you know, Seymour's inevitable death. And if anything, like I almost feel like I've gotten more anxious and upset about it because I've seen so many horrific ways that pets have died, you know? So um, it's just every time it's hard and different. And I think reminding yourself about that and giving yourself the space to grieve and reflect and like, yeah, sometimes maybe you'll be able to go back to work or school and, and feel a bit better, you know, sooner than other times. Like when Gwen died, like she was 14, she had cancer. She stopped eating and stopped drinking. And so that felt very much like she was saying, I'm out. Like I'm, I'm good. Like this is the end of my life. And I felt like she was telling us that. 
with Gus, it was a lot harder because he was only nine and terriers can live a lot longer than that. And he had this intestinal disease, which like he couldn't really process food and wasn't going to the bathroom, but he was still like often lively and energetic and had these moments of like these bursts of being his himself. So then deciding to euthanize him then, you know, I was sort of, is this right? You know, so I felt like I had a harder time with that than with Gwen. It was a little more, it was sad, but it was like, okay, I know we did the right thing with Gwen. He hated, hated um, thunder and fireworks. And so when we brought her to the vet in the end, it was on July 3rd. So we felt like our final kindness was letting her avoid (laughs) one the 4th of July because she hated the 4th of July. (laughs) I know that decision is so hard. I recently shared, so I'll keep it brief, but my first dog, Bailey, that I didn't get till I was 33 with my husband, a pit bull, border terrier mix. He just went and went and went and went. And then one day he just fell over in the yard. And two days later, we had to put him down because like everything was failing. He didn't show any signs of slowing down. It was crazy. Like he was as spunky as ever. And then our our beloved Bobo, German uh, shepherd, Irish setter. Oh my gosh, what a, what a beautiful, sweet dog. He reminds me a lot of Blue, his personality. He was slowing down. He got to 15 and he was a big dog, but I thought he had more in him. But then one day he fell down the stairs and, you know, but then he'd be peppy. Right. But my husband's like better, you know, a little too soon than too late in his his eyes. It's so hard though. No. And by far when I interviewed people who had to euthanize pets, most people I talked to said in retrospect after they realized they dragged it out and wished they had done it sooner than they had. Only like two people said they felt like they did it too soon. And usually that was because like one person was telling me about her aunt who just couldn't afford to try this very expensive surgery. And so like, I think sometimes if there's like a a cost factor or it's like you find out later, Oh, maybe there was this other treatment we could have tried, but I didn't know about it. Then people feel like it was too soon, but most people later realize like I was having a hard time letting go and my animal was suffering and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So you know, I, a lot of vets I interviewed for the book too. And I spoke to a lot of vets often said, you know, when people were like, I'm ready to euthanize, like they looked at this cat and they were like, this cat should have been euthanized like four years ago, you know, like, you know, and it's, um, and, and I think something that really was changing my perspective a lot on, um, euthanasia is, you know, I often felt sort of like, who are we to decide when a dog, you know, gets to live or die, But every single vet I spoke with said, you know, euthanasia, like it comes from the Greek meaning a good death. And it's really a gift that we can give. Like, you know, if like Gwen had all these tumors and they were on her lungs and like if we hadn't put her down, eventually the tumors would have suffocated her to death. And that is like a horrific, painful way to die. And the fact that we could, you know, send her peacefully off together, you know, in a way that was painless um, is a really a kind thing we can do. And it really blew my mind when a couple different vets I interviewed all said that they've often felt like when they find out, um, a, you know, a pet patient of theirs has died naturally, they often feel like they've failed because they, you know, wish that they had been able to euthanize and, and give an, a, a kind, soft landing when vet described it as that, you know, um, 
before dying naturally. Well, a lot of pet owners often hope for like, like when Gwen was sick, I kind of hoped like, oh, maybe I'll just wake up in the morning and she'll have died in the night. So we don't died. But it's sort of selfish in some ways, I think, to to hope your animal suffers and dies on their own to have to make the decision. But I mean, it's hard and it's different for everyone. And some people for religious reasons really are against euthanasia because, you know, they feel like it's God will decide when it's time for their pet to go. But you know, it was interesting to me to hear that vets often feel that strongly. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, there's so much in the book. I mean, we're just just getting to the tip of the iceberg. It it really is so gripping and powerful. And I think it's an absolute must for every pet parent. I love this in the book you write, quote, there are so many people who love their animals. There are so many people who have felt a connection to their pets that was profound, maybe even more profound than their connections to other people. But the irony is that in order to move through your grief over your pets, you need more than anything else, other humans, other people who get it, other people who will hold your hand and cry over a dog that died 13 years ago, people who, who will reassure you that every time is different and awful in its own way. And we touched on that earlier, but I just thought that was so beautiful. And, you know, the, the reaction you get from some people about death, like that's not helpful, but the people who truly love you and know you, I mean, I know when, when blue goes, I'm going to have an avalanche of emails and texts and maybe even calls. <laughs> you know? There's an expression that it's um, your heart dog where it's like yes. your soulmate dog. I call my and, soulmate dog. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just like, when you think about like, well, why is one person your best friend? Right. You know, like you, yeah. you really have clicked for some reason and you hit it off and like, they're just, they're friends who are you, you are closer to for some reason and other people who like you love and have fun hanging out with, but it's maybe not the same bond. Right. And I think that happens with animals too, you know? And, um, and sometimes I think it can be based on sort of maybe who brought the dog home from the shelter or if, you know, my friend Annie Hartnett, who's a great author who writes about animals a lot in her novels, um, you know, her dog Harvey was like her heart dog and they went everywhere together. And like, you know, she brought him to her office every single day with her. And so everyone she worked with loved him too. And she also, you know, is a writer and was working from home and he slept under her desk and like, she lost it when he, he died. She had a really, really hard time and ended up, you know, adopting another border collie, which later she said she felt like it was too soon. She felt like she didn't give herself enough time to process Harvey's death before bringing Willie life and in a way because of that because she was still actively grieving harvey when willie was a puppy you know she told me that willie has really bonded with her husband like she loves loves willie and they have like a special relationship now but like willie is much more her husband's dog because you know circumstances made it that way and so i think those things are all different but also just like yeah some animals personalities you connect with in a different way it's interesting i never thought about it i got Benji, only six weeks after Bobo, our beloved shepherd setter mix died. And my husband was like, I'm not ready at all. Bobo was his blue. Mm -hmm. And I was not very respectful because I'm like, yeah, but you, 
you and my, you know, our daughter are going to be out of the house. I work from home. I have to have a dog. Did not respect my husband's wish to wait to get a dog. And I do feel bad about that. Yeah, that's, people ask me that all the time too. Like, is there a perfect amount of time? And I have the terrible answer where it's like, no, it's different for everybody. And it's especially challenging, I think, in a family where maybe, one family member needs one thing and another needs something else. Like that can be really, really difficult. Um, But, you know, like Richie waited 10 years before he had another dog. My parents waited five years between Gwen's death and Honey's death. Um, You know, other people like, yeah, Annie got Willie. I think she said it was like three weeks after four weeks after Harvey died. It was really fast. Um, Yeah. Sometimes that works for people and sometimes it doesn't. So I think just trying to listen to yourself and I think trying not to rush into things. Cause I, I did talk to people who told me they felt like they resented like the new pet because they constantly were comparing them to like, Oh, well, you know, Gus never would have done this or Gwen always did this. And like the new dog was just trying to be themselves and you're like holding them up to this you know, candle. <laughs> So I often recommend, like, if you're not sure if you're ready yet, I know a lot of people who have volunteered at shelters. So it's like you can go and you can get that fix of, like, walking dogs and being with animals. But maybe if you're not quite ready yet to bring another, you know, pet into your life full time, that's a nice thing. You can dog sit. You can cat sit for people. You can even just, you know, go for walks with, like, you know, my neighbors, um, two of them, they're really good friends. They always walk their dogs together in the morning. And when one neighbor, her dog died, she still went, you know, on the walks each morning, even though her dog wasn't with her anymore. And so I think, you know, giving yourself space where you can be with animals, but aren't necessarily like committing yet can help you figure out like if you're ready or not. So there's that need, you know, volunteers to walk dogs. So. Oh, yeah. I do want to foster. And I think that for me would be something great, except he's like the first smushy pity that sits on your lap and won't move. You're going to be like, okay, we're going to keep him. And then you'll get (laughs) like 55 dogs. Um, But that's something that I'm thinking about. EB, was there anything that you wanted to add today? I've had such a wonderful time speaking with you. And like I said, people have got to get your book, Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter. I mean, the research, the study, everything. It's so impressive. And you are an incredible writer. You have a gift. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I think the only other thing I'd want to say is I know sometimes people are hesitant to read my book because they're worried it's going to just be a real downer. And I've gotten feedback from people saying that they actually were surprised at how funny it is. And I, I hope, I hope that people can find the humor in it because for me as someone who loves animals so much, like it's sort of absurd, right? It's like, no one's putting a gun to your head and saying like, you have to fall in love with this puppy and it will ruin your life in 10 to 15 years when this dog dies. Like no one's right. forcing you to do that. I mean, I will say I interviewed many parents who said basically they felt like their kids pressured them into getting pets that then they like lost it when those animals died. But right. I, um, you know, to me, it's it's sort of humorous because it's like, why are we putting ourselves through this totally voluntary <laughs> thing that ends up being really upsetting? But like having pets, like, and they make me laugh. And 
you know, like I, I mentioned this in the book, there was one time where I was writing a really sad part. I think it was about euthanizing Gus and Seymour came running into the room, like shaking a squeaky toy. Like clearly he was sick of me being on the computer and he like spun around and threw it up on my desk and it landed on my laptop. And I was just like, this is so <laughs> absurd. Like, I love it, you know? And that's what I think having animals makes you more present and makes you appreciate like the small things and find humor in situations. So I hope people know that like my book isn't just a downer about pets dying. Not at all. But it's also about the joy of having pets. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. I couldn't put it down. EB, tell us all the ways we can find your fantastic book and any other information about you. Well, um, if you'd like more information about me, you can visit my website at uh, Um My book is available wherever books are sold. So you can find it on the HarperCollins website. You can find it on Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Amazon. Um, you can order it from your favorite local independent bookstore, which is my favorite way to get books. Um, and you can also follow my Good Grief Instagram account, which is good grief pets book on instagram and every tuesday i post a pet tribute tuesday so a different animal who's passed away and people have been sending me little obituaries and memories and photos so if you have a pet memorial tribute that you'd like to share i've also been posting um a live pet Thursdays to uh, celebrate animals who are still with us as well. So if you have any pets you'd like to share, um, you know, you can send them to good grief pets book on Instagram. Oh my gosh. Okay. I love that. That is brilliant. All right. Well, everybody keep coming back to dog eared. And while you're here, check out health power and be sure to check out my sponsors as well. I used the products. I washed Benji the other day with the one earth body care shampoo bar, which was great. Everything's natural and fantastic. And I also feed Benji Yum Woof. I don't feed it to Blue because Blue is so has so many allergies. He's currently eating ground turkey, cooked peas and acorn squash. And that's it. And the funny thing is, because it's already all cooked in the fridge, I literally, every my first meal of the day is acorn squash, peas and turkey. <laughs> I eat the same thing with Blue. Maybe we're a little too connected. All right, everyone have a great day. Thanks so much for listening.